Hello and welcome to season 12 of the podcast. I'm Natalie Nahai and I'm really excited to share this new set of conversations with you, especially as we have so many exciting guests coming up. As we dive into this new season, we'll be deepening our inquiry into our relationship with one another, with technology and the living world, and exploring how, in the face of accelerating ecological disruption, technological advancement and systemic change, we can chart a path towards a flourishing future for all. I'll be speaking with people who are transforming how we conceive of culture, belonging and interbeing, and mapping out the changing landscape of economics, politics and the open internet. We'll explore the power of beauty and the arts to bring us back into contact with vitality and joy, and discover the many ways in which we might build collective resilience and community during times of turbulence. Speaking of which, as a few of you may know, for a couple of years now I've been hosting the Flourishing Futures Salon in London, a series of intimate, curated, gastronomical evenings that combine locally sourced food and elegant wines with meaningful, thought-provoking conversation. Having started out as a personal project among friends, exploring many of the themes we touch upon in the podcast, I've decided to open the salon to a wider audience. And I'm excited to say that the website is now up at ffsalons.com. And if you'd like to attend the next gathering in London, you can sign up to register your interest. When we have the next date scheduled, you'll receive a private invitation and a special listener's discount. In the meantime, if you'd like to watch the video version of my podcast conversations, head over to my YouTube channel, youtube.com forward slash at Natalina High, where I'll be posting additional bonus content with my guests. I hope you find this season inspiring, thought-provoking and helpful. And if you'd like to get in touch, just reach out to me on Instagram or LinkedIn at Natalina High. Thanks for joining me and I hope you enjoy the journey. Today, I have the joy and privilege of being in conversation with Joe Confino, an executive coach, facilitator, journalist, sustainability expert, and Zen mindfulness practitioner, whose work at the intersection of personal transformation and systems change has been an inspiration to me and to many, many others around the world. If you follow Joe's journey, you may have encountered his thoughtful conversations on the popular podcast, The Way Out Is In a beautiful and uplifting series he co-hosts with Brother Fab Hu, the abbot of Little Hamlet at Plum Village, who for 17 years was the personal attendant to Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. Having worked closely with this community for the past 14 years, Joe is also an advisory board member of Parallax Press, which publishes books on mindfulness in daily life. With 40 years of experience as a journalist, Joe has worked on regional and national newspapers and websites with an emphasis on business and finance, including three years as Wall Street correspondent for the Daily Telegraph. Until recently, he was the executive editor, impact and innovation and editorial director of What's Working at the HuffPost in New York, where he served as a member of the senior leadership team. During his five years there, Joe developed long-term editorial projects based on social, environmental and economic justice. Before joining HuffPost, Joe was executive editor of The Guardian, where he created and managed the sustainability vision and strategy for The Guardian and its parent company, Guardian Media Group. Chairman and editorial director of The Guardian's sustainable business website, 
During his 23 years there, Joe set up and managed a unique multi-stakeholder development project in the Ugandan village of Katine, and he helped create the Guardian's environmental and global development websites. A fellow of the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce, Joe is also a trustee of Theatre for a Change, whose purpose is the empowerment of women and girls, particularly in their sexual and reproductive health. Having chaired and facilitated events and conferences all over the world for the past 20 years, Joe also runs workshops and roundtables for attendees, including CEOs, prime ministers and NGO heads. He's currently working with LeadersQuest, which helps leaders and companies align profit with purpose, as well as Future Stewards, a coalition of partners working together to build a regenerative future. This, for me, was one of the most moving conversations I've had to date on this podcast, not least because we touched on some deep and, dare I say, personal themes, which normally I kind of steer steer well clear of. So um, I hope that my risk-taking and vulnerability lands well with you and that you enjoy this podcast episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening in. And I would really love to hear your thoughts on this one in particular. So if you have any comments, ideas, insights, feedback, um, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn. Joe, thank you so much for joining me in conversation today. I am very excited to be having this chat with you. I'd love to, to start by asking you what you sense or imagine is going on in the global human psyche right now? Oh, well, I, like, I love the way you start with a very small question. <laughs> um, what's going on with the human psyche? Well, I, I, I think we're at a crossroads in human evolution and development. And, um, and there seems to be this choice, which is we either go into a whole new way of seeing and understanding ourselves our relationships and and the the interconnection and interbeing of everything, or we follow uh, the route of sort of fear and um, grabbing and um, individualization and separation and polarization, and actually sort of go into a terminal decline. So so I think we're coming to the stage where actually there there is a very clear choice to be made. Um, and we and we know sometimes in our lives that that happens to us when there's a when we have a fundamental illness or we're given some really bad news we're we're given a choice aren't we of am I going to fundamentally shift the way I act in the world and the way I look after myself or if knowing that if I carry on as I am then then that will be the end of me so so I I always like to think of things you know, what we see in the collective as always also being something that's in the personal. And there's not really a mm. difference. There's a difference of scale, but actually not a difference in terms of how of our understanding that what is in the the one is in the all, what is in the all is in the one. And if, if we believe that, then we can see it. Mm. I love that connection between, well, the, the Thich Nhat Hanh interbeing concept, which is so poetic and also just fundamentally real. <laughs> Um, our dependence on one another. And then the scale question. So I wonder when thinking about all of the crises that we face, I'm I'm curious about how we conceive of ourselves, because a lot of folks, to sort of speak to your point about the path of fear or the path perhaps of love, 
a lot of us worry about humanity just being this kind of, I don't like using the words because it just doesn't feel like it's generative, but, you know, the, a cancer upon the earth or this plague. There's a lot of language around that sort of really heavy, nasty stuff that we're afraid of, we don't want to talk about, we don't want to be it. And it's quite an unhelpful story to have about ourselves. No one wants to think that they're fundamentally problematic or bad. And so I wonder, what are some of the most unhelpful stories that you feel we hold about ourselves as a species? And what are some of the more beautiful stories that we forget about ourselves? Mm. Well, I think what we forget about ourselves is that we are part of life. <laughs> and that whatever we see in the world is is related to our own consciousness. And, and so, so there's no separation between things. Um, and I was uh, coaching someone yesterday and she had written a poem while she was away about, about seeing, uh, she was in Scotland and seeing a stag mm. and mm. then seeing a sea eagle and, uh, and seeing porpoises. And where we came to was actually, you know, there is no difference between a, her and the porpoises, and and each 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 of us is in each of us, in as in everyone else, and so so this idea of actually when we look out into the world, we're seeing with our eyes and our consciousness, and so whether we choose to see something beautiful or something ugly, something fearful, something uh, with huge generosity and care is really the way we choose to see the world. So, so in other words, we have enormous choices. And, and that's a beautiful, if you want to talk about beauty, I mean, how beautiful that mm. we have the consciousness and the ability to, to make decisions about what we pay our attention to, what we see, how we relate. And that, um, you know, I love in Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings, you know, that that the view we have leads to our perceptions and our perceptions lead to our thoughts and our thoughts lead to our actions. And that is the, the world we create. Mm. And, and I think, you know, there's enormous beauty in seeing this ca amazing capacity we have. Mm. And then in a sense, the, the worst story is when we choose to see things as only outside of ourselves and things that seem to be separate from us and have no connection to us and that we can then blame and then we can sort of portray as evil or as uh, negative or as damaging and and without without being able to own it so that we project all our negativity on the world and then and then attack it so so i think the beauty and ugliness is is in that sense just a choice um in terms of what you see is you know this negative thing of people seeing themselves as a plague and if we just wipe ourselves out quickly, then the earth will be fine. Um, is a sort of misrepresentation of what I think the truth is. I think we, we have the capacity, as I said, to destroy or to create. And um, so and when, when we're destroying, it's coming from pain and suffering. It's not because we're evil. It's because we're, we don't know how to handle our emotions. We don't know how to deal with the circumstances we're in. And then we sort of, and then, and, and then we can cause harm and negativity. Um, but that doesn't make us a plague. It just shows the level, it shows the collective consciousness of the level of pain there is in the world that, that we would choose to act in the way we do rather than see that there's another way. And, and you know, when we look at 
climate and sustainability. And, mm. you know, we've known for many years what the, a lot of the answers are. We, we have the, you know, as people say, we have the technology, we know the route to, we, we have a very clear route to bringing or starting to bring things back into balance. And yet we're choosing um, to ignore it and to go in the opposite direction. So, you know, that, that doesn't make us bad people. It just makes us not very wise. Yeah. And um, I have a friend who talks about, you know, we, we've grown, ex- our intelligence has grown, but not our wisdom. <laughs> and so, you know, our intelligence is like on, going up off the curve, you know, the amount of knowledge and, and scientific understanding we have is huge, but has our wisdom grown even an iota? Mm. And, and there's that separation of wisdom and, and knowledge that is allowing us to create the problems we're in. It's interesting hearing you talk about pain and suffering. I was listening to an interview that you had on, I'm going to forget the name of the podcast now, but I'll include it in the show notes, Um, but talking about suffering and talking about grief. And for some reason in the last week, there've been, you know how sometimes these things come up in clusters, these conversations or themes pop up in clusters. And one of them has been around death and loss. And I was thinking how, at least in Western cultures, we don't make space for these things. And I think there's something really fundamental about grief and love being deeply connected. And if you're not able to feel grief at what's being lost, how can you tune into the love that will move you to perhaps embrace life from a different place that enables you to live differently, to see differently? Because obviously it's not just about action. If it's just about action, it's part of the same kind of mindset that causes a lot of the problems. It's just like, let's fix it. It's like, well, it's a little bit more complicated than that. But there is something about grief and love that is really important. And I wonder what you've learned or experienced in making space for people to tap into the unwelcome feelings, the pain, the suffering, the grief, and what happens when you you give people that kind of terrain, Mm. you you let them reconnect with that. Well, of course, when we grieve... Um, we go into our tenderness and our vulnerability and, and it's a bit like um, we, we, we take, we allow the armour to fall away <laughs> and, uh, and we allow our soft inner um, tender tenderness to, to show up and, and so much of life we, 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 we go out of our home with our armour on in the morning uh, and we feel the need to protect ourselves and yet when, when we're able to touch the, the sort of deep well of sadness and um, and pain in the world. It, what it brings out is is this amazing wish to actually be present to life and to appreciate all that there still is. And um, I had that experience this week. I was uh, it was my eldest brother's sixty ninth birthday, mm. and um, and there. Four of us brothers left, and and we were on a call together, and uh, and he's about to be, he was sixty nine, and uh, and then you know each of my brothers is two years younger than I'm the youngest, and and it was a really such a sweet conversation about about the lives we've spent together, and apart, and 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 the love there is, and the and the support and appreciation there is between this band of brothers. And then I came off the call and I just went into this deep sadness. 
recognizing that you know one day mm. there won't be the four of us on the call and there'll be three of us and then there'll be two of us and one of my brothers said well you know who's going to be at everyone else's grave who's going to last out and that sense of when when we when we lose things um it just makes us appreciate so much i was um i'll give you another example I, outside of my back door there's a there's a, a buddleia plant, and the buddleia plant is beloved of uh, butterflies. Butterflies flock to it. Oh, yeah. But where it is in our garden, it, it blocks it blocks our view <laughs> to some extent. And so, you know, mo mo most of the uh, most of the the flowers had gone, and there were just a few. And I, so I thought, right, okay, I'm going to get out my clippers. I'm going to cut it down, and before it gets cold, and while we can still sit outside, I'm going to chop it down so I can see the view better. Yeah. Um, and then I realized actually there were, there were still a few flowers and those few flowers were probably more precious to the butterflies because they were still there. And actually, so I decided not to cut it down. And every morning I've been sitting outside and there were four or five small blossoms left, you know, four small, and, and I'm watching the butterflies come and mm. eat from that. And, and for me, it's like, I feel such abundance in the little that's left Oof. and the appreciation that, that the butterflies can still feel from that much more so than when it was full of blossom. When it was full of blossom, it was very beautiful, but all, almost, I almost ignored it. I didn't, I did not notice it, but I didn't pay attention to it. But when it was just the last blossoms, every morning I paid attention to each one and I, I'd watch the butterflies mm. come and land and feed. And, um, and, and I'm, texted one of my brothers because I said I this feels more abundant this isn't this that we think of abundance having lots of but actually I, I got this different sense of abundance that there was an abundance in the scarcity in in the in the loss mm. in the fact that it was losing there was still a there was there was a deeper abundance there because at that moment it was feeding the butterflies and I was aware of it and caring caring about it and so for me that had a different quality of relationship hmm. than when it was full. That's so interesting. I've been thinking recently about um, how to walk in, in both worlds um, between that kind of rich space of presence and connection and sense of love or sense of, it's kind of like a loving presence state, which is magical when it happens and quite overpowering sometimes and then and when where those things happen so for me I'm, I'm an avid artist and a musician and and that happens most often in those spaces also in conversation I find um, I'm a lot more alive and present on so many more levels but then there's also kind of the corporate space the professional space which which taps into different elements like intellectual stimulation a certain level of belonging or relatedness but walking in these two worlds where there's this sense of kind of where I want to spend more time and then where I spend more time because, you know, it's, it's kind of making a living and other people would probably relate to this too. I wonder how possible it is to connect those two worlds together, to, to help people plug themselves back in to a sense of vitality and abundance and awe and preciousness and the finitude of what we actually are gifted 
I think that's the thing. It's how, because we, we kind of, I was listening to this, um, thinking of this, listening to an episode on you <laughs> this morning in preparation for our call and thinking it's it's so easy to just rush our way through our days and distract ourselves with social media and all the rest of it and the emails. And actually time is ticking down and it's not to put a spin of scarcity on it so that we end up in that urgent mode of panic, which obviously can happen, but more a sense of like pay attention. What are the things that you're really going to wish you'd spent more time with or on or in relationship with when it's your last breath because that day comes? Um, which might sound a bit morbid, but we don't really have anything like a memento mori in this day and age. We're kind of distracting ourselves out of death and out of life somehow. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are and around that. Well, I, I, I very much connect to the... Uh, Buddhist sort of gatha of the five remembrances, hmm. um, which the, the monks and nuns here in Plum Village um, uh, go through every day. I am of the nature to get old. I will get old. I am of the nature to get sick. I will get sick. I am of the nature to die. I will die. I will be separated from everything I have loved and held dear, there's no escape. And all I can rely on are my thoughts and actions, because that is my continuation. And, um, and I love that because it's, it's saying, actually, all these things are inevitable. Mm. And, and all these things, will, all the things we care about will pass. But actually what continues, and what continues is our thoughts, the way we have spoken to people, the way we thought about things, the way we've acted in the world, that fundamentally shift people's life. So, you know, I think the mistake is when you describe it as two worlds. Hmm. There's the world of your artistic endeavour and then there's the world of the corporate. And, and of course, they aren't two worlds. They're, <laughs> they're one world. But, but so, and, and as soon as we create that, that idea of two worlds. Division. We immediately, yeah, we immediately judge one as, well, I can't be, I can have to be a certain person in this, and therefore I will compensate for it, that in my music and my um, art, that then I can fully flourish, and, and I'll just cope with the corporate stuff. <laughs> and, and, and that often leads to, to that belief. So that, that creates the collective consciousness that in business, you can't have fun. You can't show up fully. I mean, I remember I, I used to work at, um, you know, when it was at the Huff Post, it, it was part of, um, it's part of uh, a much larger media company. And they did this sort of internal campaign saying, show up fully to work. And, and I thought, my God, they, they, that's the last thing they want. Because if everyone showed up fully to work, then the business would, <laughs> would fundamentally change. Mm. So, 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 so no one turns up at work fully themselves because they believe that it's it's not possible to do that and and they would be fired or whatever and of, and of course there 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 are things we can and can't do but i you know when I, when i was at work i always tried to be fully myself and 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 found that when i was more fully myself more things happened hmm. and that it was only this convention that i had to stick within this very narrow confines that that kept things as they were so you know the truth is that in every interaction 
we're in in life, we can be an artist and a painter. I love that. <laughs> you know, every, every time we talk to someone. Mm. <laughs> well, well, you know, I remember when I was at The Guardian, I was trained up as a coach because I wanted to sort of support the journalists. You know, while continuing to be a journalist, I wanted to support journalists who were suffering because there was a lot, you know, like everyone else, there was a lot of suffering. And so they trained me up and then, and then the opportunity didn't work out. And I went to see uh, the head of uh, learning and development and she said, don't worry about it. She said, every conversation is a coaching conversation. Mm. You don't have to be a formal coach to coach. Every time you interact with anyone can be a coaching conversation. And, um, and so if, if the, we were to change our mind about work and just show up more, then what often that does and I, and I know there are risks, you know, it depends on our levels of power and our feelings of security and all that. But, it, but if we show up 10% more and everybody showed up 10% more and had a different quality to the conversations and to the decision making and a broader understanding of the impacts you have and then how you might want to behave, then, then things would over time fundamentally shift. Mm. And, you know, there's this, Thing, saying that you know, if you if you take a, a huge ship and you change its um, direction by five degrees, then it will end up in a very different part of the world, because over time that five degrees is becomes a big a big distance. Um, so it's not something about we have to fundamentally change everything now, but it's saying as we start to change things and start to really sort of see with fresh eyes, then the world starts to shift. And then we give people other permission because so much in life is the permission we give people mm. that, that by showing up in a particular way, it gives people permission to also show up that. And, and, and just one last thing, in all the sort of group work I've done, either facilitated or taken part in, what shifts the dynamic is always the one first person who shows up with their true emotions. It might be they cry or they share a vulnerable moment. And after that moment, everyone's sharing changes. But if no one does that, the sharing will stay within a very tight um, sort of constraint. <laughs> it reminds me of um, a similar observation by um, Mac McCartney. Mac McCartney, who runs... <laughs> Who runs Embercum and talking about uh, work with leaders and sustainability and kind of knocking away on a three day, I think it was about a three day session trying to get people to care more deeply. And in the end, he t changes tactic and dares the people in the room to try something different. And they say, yeah, yeah, sure, we can dare to try something different. And then he asks them one by one, what do you most profoundly love? And what you described just there is like the first person cracks open and then the whole, it's like a domino effect, the whole room shifts into a completely different space. Um, so I'm curious to ask, you mentioned permission. And um, one of the things that I think is really quite striking about what seems to happen with people who are connected with Plum Village over time and I'm thinking here of the outrage and optimism folks who I know that you're connected with. Mm. And in particular, um, Cristiana Figueres. My partner is from Costa Rica, so he's kind of very invested in yeah. um, 
their work in the world and um and how she has been quite open about the teachings that she's found valuable through this Zen Buddhist practice and the spiritual values that have enabled her and countless others who are not perhaps as visible to be able to engage in work that is perhaps frightening or complicated or that don't seem to have a clear path forward. And I wonder what your thoughts are around that, about orienting oneself perhaps more publicly towards values when we're in such a kind of materialist age. Mm. Well, uh, you know, I, I was just um, on a call with Christiana earlier, and um, and one of the things that she and I have been doing is working with the monastics to create these um, uh, climate retreats for climate leaders and activists. And there's one coming up in a couple of weeks, and we've done... Um, and the plan is to take them around the world. Wow. And what my experience, you know, having done three now, is just the fundamental shift in people's consciousness when they stop, rest and heal and open themselves up. Mm-hmm. And, and so at the most recent retreat, you know, there's so many examples of people realizing that they've just had blinkers on and they've been missing out on what's most important. So there was one man who, and, and one, of, one, of, one of the things we do in the retreat every day is a, is a meditation walk. Mm. And it's a very slow walk to go nowhere. <laughs> and and one, of the, one of the senior leaders in the afternoon, their sharing, family sharing circles and in the sharing circle I was in, he said, I'm always in a hurry to get somewhere, wherever I walk, I'm in a hurry. I never walk slowly, and I certainly would never walk to no for no purpose, just to go nowhere. And he said, "But this has been the most profound experience." Mm. And you, there were people. There were a couple of people who said, "I thought I was just a busy person. I'm always busy, and I thought that's who I am. That's what I love. That's that's how I operate." And after being here for two days, I realized I don't want to be a busy person. And actually these two days where I've just been resting and slowing down and focusing on my breath and focusing on my body, that actually this is my happiness. Mm. And everyone who comes to these retreats fundamentally shifts because they realize that they've been caught in a story that no longer serves them. And, um, and you know, I've, I've had long conversations with Christiane and, and I, she, you know, she's a real blessing. I, I, I refer to her as, <laughs> well, I've told her, I said, I said you're like an oak, an oak tree. Oh. Because, because by being prepared to speak out now more, more deeply and honestly about her spiritual path, rather than mm, hiding it to some extent, mm. she, she offers this extraordinary refuge mm. for other people to do the same. Because, because the fear, of course, is that the current system doesn't give permission for these feelings or these, this way of seeing. And so most people avoid it because they think there's a punishment, that oh. they'll be punished for it. And, and they feel powerless to, so, you know, there's the idea of I leave myself at home when I go to work. Mm. And what people like Christiana is doing 
is someone who's deeply respected, deeply honoured. No one can think call her woo-woo or that she's a crazy or that she's lost the plot or that, you know, I thought she was something, but actually I realised she was never anything at all and it was just all of the tense. Uh, she's one of those people that, that says, wow, if Christiana is in for that, then, then I'll sign up and have a look. And um, and what we get with the retreats is, you know, if I if I sent out the invitation to all these leaders, you know, maybe one might show a vague interest. <laughs> and if Plum Village sent it out to all these leaders, you know, there'd be a handful of people who'd say, well, I'll, you know, not used to this, but I'll give it a go. When Christiana sends out the email, everyone just says yes. Yeah. Because they trust her. <laughs> and they say, I don't know what it is. I don't understand. It doesn't make any sense to me, but... I'll come. So, so if, if you look at that, you know, that's why it's so important to have permission because it's, it's, it, it casts shade under which we can all rest and mm. say, well, if Christiana can be like that, then I can show up a bit more like that. So I have a question then. If we're thinking about ways in which shifts happen and obviously kind of the, the inner work and the outer work mirroring one another, mm. what are your thoughts around how we can bring that quality of um, presence and connection that we experience in these contexts where, you know, you're bringing people into a space which is an intentional space, which has been crafted to help people feel again, perhaps more fully, their belonging in a wider web of life. Mm. And when so many of our lives on a day-to-day basis have ended up in such a way that they are atomizing or you know, kind of our, our time is parceled into hours and minutes and it's about productivity and meetings. And how do we bring with us, carry with us those seeds of change within ourselves into those lives when the old structures are still there? How do we interact with that so that those seeds can kind of take root and something else becomes possible? Well, you know, I, I, I love the film The Matrix and, and The Matrix is all about seeing through something as not really being the reality you thought it is so, mm-hmm. so and I remember once when I was at the um, I was at the working as a business and finance journalist at the Daily Telegraph this was many many years ago and we'd, we were in the Canary Wharf offices and I, I, and in, in the Docklands of London I remember walking to the office through this big underground shopping centre mm-hmm. and and I was just watching and I, and I realised it, it was already it had already passed it, it it looked like it existed, but it it already didn't exist. That that one day this wouldn't have no meaning, and and it it wasn't really the reality. I saw that it wasn't really a reality. It was almost a shimmer. It's almost like in a desert, seeing an oasis that doesn't exist. Um, and so you know, for all the reasons that are very good reasons, this this reality and this. Um, this system we're in and we've created is looks like it's solid as a rock. Hmm. Looks as though it's 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 immovable. Um, and also, we know it's it is a collection of thoughts, and it's completely permeable. And if we, if enough people change their mind about it tomorrow, it, it couldn't it would cease to exist because it it was no longer real. So you know, the Buddha said that you know, with our thoughts, we create the world, hmm. and and we do. So, so one of the things is that 
we can be fully in something and recognize that it's not real. Hmm. And um, and one of the things in uh, Thich Nhat Hanh's teachings, but also Buddhism in general, that is, is quite difficult to get hold of, but I think is fundamentally helpful, is, you know, this concept of two dimensions. There's the ultimate dimension and there's the historical dimension. And the historical dimension is we're living in this moment, uh, the planet, uh, our planetary uh, ecosystems and our social systems are are degrading and in danger of collapse. And I want to do everything I can mm. to change. And that I want to I want to make my you know this is my life that I'm going to devote to, to this. And then there's another truth which is actually, well, you know everything, the, you know the nature of everything is impermanence. Hmm. We have no idea what will happen or what won't happen. That there've been in the eons of life of time that things are constantly rising and falling. Civilizations rise, civilizations fall. One day the earth will um, explode because the sun will explode. You know, so so that's not for four billion years, but but the earth, we know the earth already has a lifespan and it too will pass. Hmm. And that we know that others, other, and I, I I know nothing about science or anything else, but I, there's some this idea, isn't it, that we are made of stardust? Hmm. That there's other stars exploding that brought all the all the debris to earth and, and created life. And it may be that in four billion years, the earth will explode and all the life there is left will be thrown into space and may end up populating life on other planets. And, mm-hmm. and that we have no idea. And that everything, nothing is, you can't create energy, you can't kill energy. It, energy shifts, it's constantly shifting. And so, so, so we don't have to be in control of knowing or, and we're not in control of deciding what will happen. Um, and and those are both true. You know, I, I, I used the example the other day with someone who I was coaching. I said, you know, uh, uh, you know, when Rome was, if you were alive when Rome was burning, and the and the, you know, the infidels or whatever you call them, I don't know what that's a appropriate term or not, but but the heathens or whatever were were about to <laughs> ransack the city. And you were you were in the city, and you were sort of doing quite nicely. Thank you. You you would think that your world had en- your world had ended, that it was the end of civilization, that actually it was the end of any anything meaningful. And and now it's a sort of footnote in history, which mm. some people may in the West may study for you know a short while as they're studying everything else. And and so it may be that this is a you know in hundreds, thousands of years that, you know, this will be a short note that's studied as there was this moment where it looked like people thought the world was ending, that, that, that nothing would come of it, that we've all sunk. And um, and we don't know. Um, and also there is this moment where there is danger and we do want to act in the same way that in Rome, if you saw the city being around, say, you know, you don't say, oh, well, there's the ultimate dimension. It doesn't really, really matter what happens. You get the... F- Sorry, I won't swear. You can, you it's more explicit. Get the hell out of there as quickly just... as possible. And, okay, all right. You get the fuck out of there and you run for the hills as quickly as you can. Yeah, you would. You know, and and um, and, and as that sort of Sufi phrase, you know, trust in God, but don't forget to tie up your camel. Yeah, love it. Which is because if you don't tie up your camel, it's going gonna, it's gonna to head off. So, and, and I feel that 
that we're in that place is that, you know, tying up our camel is trying to save what is going on now, but also trusting God, which is trusting the ultimate way of things and of life. And, and most people see those as in deep conflict with each other, and they aren't. And, um, and you know, I, I'm not very advanced in my understanding of this, but, but again, coming back to Thich Nhat Hanh, he, he talked about it as the Z of Zorro, which is that the top line is the ultimate, the bottom line is the, is the um, historical dimension, and, and he draws the, <laughs> the interlining um, uh, line to make it a Z. And, on, and saying that they, these are not separate, they interpenetrate each other. So that if you're working in the historical dimension, which is all the problems we face in the world now, but with the understanding of the ultimate dimension, it brings out a sense of peace and acceptance and understanding. It takes away the panic and the need to be right and the sense that if I fail, then, then the, it's all on my shoulders and then the, you know, it's up to me. And if we don't do it in five years, then we fucked up and it creates all this burnout and pressure and, and feeling and mm. and to you can be at peace and work really hard and be fully committed and give your all, but there's a complete difference in the energy of that. Whereas if you're panicking and you think this is all there is is this moment and if the world goes to to hell in a handbasket that's the end and 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 there's nothing left that has any meaning in the world, then you're going to panic and, yeah. and we know that when you panic. It doesn't really help. So, so you know, these under these deeper ways of seeing actually help us to be more effective. Mm. Because you know, Thich Nhat Hanh gives the example of a, of a boat, you know, with, which is in danger of sinking, and if everyone's panicking, the, the boat sinks. And sometimes it takes one calm person in the boat to just who gives a sense of peace and calmness that quietens everyone down. Mm. And um, and that is about presence. So so it's about the power of presence. Mm -hmm. I wonder how. Obviously, well, I'm not a Buddhist practitioner. I have tried various things in the past. Like I, I'm quite fidgety. I like to move. So my um, my presence um, tool of choice or practice of choice would be movement, like five rhythms or something like this, and or walking in the forest, which. I love, or Hampstead Heath when I'm in London because I live in Boston, I know. But there is definitely something about the quality of presence that we bring to others. And then people just, there's something interesting about when you intentionally do that. Like I hold these, I've mentioned this a few times on the podcast. I hold these gatherings at my art studio where I share my painting space with my partner. And on every full moon or occasionally if we're traveling, it'll be on a new moon just because it's easy to keep track. We'll open the doors and people will come, friends, um, folks who are connected with our friends and we'll just be together for an evening and there'll be you know whatever people want to drink and eat and songs and uh it's just very unpretentious sitting on you know the floor but it's this there's this this moment where the shoulders drop and whatever tightness we've been carrying is allowed to just dissolve a little mm. bit and time suddenly becomes a lot fuller in the sense that we're not scrambling to go to the next thing or, I don't know, there's something about that that for me it feels like a radical act is to create refuge for oneself and others. 
you mentioned the tree with the with the shade underneath, that these spaces, these moments that punctuate, um, in my case, sort of a monthly rhythm, are profoundly nourishing. And so I wonder if people are listening to this or watching this and they don't necessarily have an established practice, what are some of the starting places you might suggest for them to find that that kind of spaciousness for themselves to, to cultivate or drop into a sense of presence? Mm. So, so just to be clear, I'm, I'm, I think probably the worst pa- practitioner in Plum Village. So <laughs> I do, I, I've subcontracted all my practices to my wife. So she sits every morning, she does Tai Chi every morning. She does morning pages and writes about what's going on in her mind every morning. And I, I get up, have a cup of tea and sort of think, oh, shit, what should I do with my day? So, so just to be clear, I'm not a good practitioner in the traditional sense of things. But I think I'm a not bad practitioner in the art of mindful living. So I think I think the mistake is to think that 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 practice is a formal thing. Now, of course, I, I would probably be a much better practitioner, have a much clearer mind if I did sit every morning, but I'm not a sitter either. I don't, I'd like to move about. I like to get up and about and do stuff. And I, I think people find their, their practice climbing mountains, playing music, mm. dancing, swimming. There's all sorts of ways we can come to our, our centre and, and let, let the, the sort of swirling busyness and fears and concerns sort of, as you say, melt away. So, so I think the first thing is not to judge oneself as I'm not good <laughs> at this, therefore I'm never going to be good at that. Um, and I think cultivating presence is cultivating self-awareness. It's saying, actually, you know, what, what, why do we trust people? Um, because we know they hold something. Hmm. And we know that we can trust something in them. And what, what is it we trust? We, we trust that actually there's an awareness of who they are and that they can then express it in a way that reaches and touches people. And, um, and so I think, you know, cultivating presence is, you know, coming back home to oneself and it's not something you read about it's not something you learn about it's something you sort of start to experience and and, and there's certain you know it took me when I was a young man I really didn't think I had anything to offer I didn't really think I had any worth at all and it took me a few years to get to a place where I could say I liked myself and mm. then a bit longer another two or three years before I could genuinely say that I had love for myself. I couldn't say I loved myself, but I had love for myself that I could appreciate that I had something to offer. Because because it, it was like for most of my early years, I, I I was like a bowl that was empty, and I had not. I felt because I felt I had nothing to give myself. Then then why? How could I have something to give other people? And when my bowl started to flow over, because it was actually filling up then I was able to um, start being generous with other people. You know, so many people avoid looking at themselves because they think it's self-indulgent and actually who am I? And people have so many self-criticisms about I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy enough, um, you know, whatever I do is not going to be enough. And, and we have so many childhood wounds that force us into sacrifice and denial and... Um, and well, all sorts of jealousy, mm. rage, whatever it is. And, you know, for me, Plum Village, 
and my practice being the journey home. That, you know, recognizing that, that I was no longer going to, you know, these were no longer going to rule my life. And, and, you know, coming to live in Plum Village was a decision and, and it was about creating spaciousness. So I realized that actually, if I wanted to offer spaciousness to other people, then I had to offer it to myself. And that if I'm in my coaching facilitation practice, if I'm busy, then, and people come to me with all their busyness, all I'm offering them is my busyness. It doesn't matter what, <laughs> what I say I'm offering them. I'm offering yeah. my busyness. And, and so, so actually we offer who we are, not what we say. So, so, you know, my, if I would say I have an aim, it's to co- cultivate my presence in the sense that I, what I, what I recognize, and I love the, the metaphor, the tuning mm. forks, that, <clears throat> that, what we, that what we become aware of or what we can change is what we can respond to is resonance. In the same way that, you know, you strike a tuning fork and another tuning fork are the same in the frequency. same I don't know, tone or whatever you call it, I don't know the right word, where frequency will, will also then vibrate. And so in a sense, we're all that. You know, if, if I'm angry, resentful, bitter, twisted, which I'm sure I am <laughs> in part, but if that's my predominant narrative, then that's actually what people, that's what I offer to other people. And I will, and I will bring that resonance out in them, which we all have. And if I'm sort of more generous, kind, thoughtful, caring, affectionate, playful, joyful, then to the extent I'm able to do that will be the extent that I offer that to anyone around me who can then touch it without knowing they're touching it because it's just they're just resonating to it. In the same way that if you're kind to someone who's in a bad mood, you can change their mood because it's bringing up another aspect of them that is blocked at that moment. So if you, if you were to imagine... And I, and I don't, if you were to imagine that we're all just frequencies, you know, <laughs> like that sense, we're going to create, creating frequencies. <laughs> and then that, so we create, we have our individual frequencies, then we have the collective frequency. And, um, and those have an impact on us. So when the collective frequency is around sort of um, closing down, polarization, mm. othering, then that touches that part of ourselves as well. And we can... However kind we think we are, it, touch, it touches our place of fear or othering as well, because we all have that, you know, in the, in the Buddhist psychology, there's, there's the sort of store consciousness in which all the seeds of our emotions are in there and, and, and depends, our life depends on which ones get watered. And so if we're constantly being watered by, by greed and wanting things just for ourselves and not caring about others, that's what gets watered in our individual seeds as well, because everything goes to support that, the advertising, who's successful, who's seen to be famous, all the rest of it. So thinking then about how we can perhaps create a bit more space to recognize when that's happening and to make make, make it possible to, to choose differently. I'm also thinking especially now for folks who have been raised, I was talking about this with someone earlier today, like those of us who had the fortune, I think of it as good fortune, to be raised without the internet. So I remember having my first mobile when I was 16 and it was literally just one of these, you know, Mm. clicky little Nokias that lasted for a week without having to recharge it. For those of us lucky enough to kind of be around before the internet and then also see its, its, um, its rise and its adoption, 
my feeling is that we have kind of these senses, memories, somatic senses, mental models of what it is to be able to be unrushed or to feel un, un kind of with a foot slightly off the acceleration. And I worry about younger folks who've just, this is what they've known. They've been born into this hyper-accelerated, technologically mediated world where mm. everything is instant and there's there's so much information that it's it's actually, it's impossible to digest or to withstand. What are ways in which we can help younger folks sort of with, with that? Because there's got to be certain things that we can do always to help create spaces where they can also realize that there's another there's another way possible there are multiple other ways possible and and of course it's not to generalize because i know some young people who are far <laughs> more advanced in their understanding of life than i am um so and who 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 are my teachers as well um i well i think one of the things is you know and i and i'm sort of entering uh, entering what if I could generously, generously describe as maybe my elderhood. <laughs> so, so there's one thing which is around around exp- holding that that knowledge and and sharing it. So it's sort of that's just a direct thing of this is what life can look like. Um, and and also, you know. We, we, I, when I was young, I went through through different problems, hmm. and and I had to find my answers to them. And um, and and it, it, you know, as I speak, and I, I, I don't if I believe what I'm about to say, even though it's <laughs> forming in my mind. So I already know what I'm going to say, but I don't know what I'm going to say yet. But I've already yeah. denying it. So that's interesting. <laughs> Very um, is <laughs> it is that maybe in this age people have to go through that pain barrier mm. that 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 to come into relationship that the dislocation and the 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 separation needs to be so strong and painful mm. that it shifts us into a different way of being that that if if um if everything was okay now and everyone was feeling well. You know, the world's going to Helen Hansbarger's, but but I'm feeling quite connected and quite happy mm. um, myself. That that may not be, but it may maybe the resonance of this age is showing up in people in the in the in the the wish to hide away in in all these choices. So much choice that there's no choice. So much information that there's no wisdom. <laughs> that maybe you know, with AI threatening to take hold that that you know just maybe if you look at the wide arc of history and time then maybe we need to go through this period of discombobulation and separation and and non-understanding if to break through into the new ground and that if it wasn't bad enough then we of course wouldn't do it and we, and we all have those experiences don't we mm-hmm. that something comes knocking on our door and we ignore it and then we ignore <laughs> it and then it comes really, someone comes and knocks the door down and hits us over the head and we say, all right, okay, right, got it. I'll do something about this. So it just may be that, you know, because this is the human, uh, our attempt to make sense of things. That how do we stop something from happening? Mm. And and yes, of course, you know, this comes back to the historical and ultimate. Of course, we should try and stop it because we don't want to see people right now in pain and suffering. 
we want to do our best to, to help people feel connected and in relationship. And of course, we should be. And also, we don't know what's going on. Mm. And maybe something has to get to the point where people wake up. And Thich Nhat Hanh calls about that collective awakening. That, that we have to wake up, not one person, but we have to wake up as a society and say, actually, oh my God, look where we've got to. And, and to then say, well, it's time, we need to change this. And, and then to look at what's changed, what needs to change. And, um, and one thing I, you know, been in the sustainability, business sustainability field for decades as a journalist and, you know, in the work I was doing. And, uh, and I always said that, you know, we were preparing the ground for, for when a change that was ripening and, mm. and using the sort of metaphor of a, of a farmer, that, you know, that everything people have done, we've been clearing the rocks away from the field, we've been making sure that the, the, the soil can hold life, we've been sort of getting it ready, we've been, and, and so I'm getting the seeds and, and that when the rains come, something can grow because all the work was done for it to grow. Mm. And, and so sometimes I see everything we've done in sustainability looks like it doesn't add up to a row of beans on one level. And on another level, we've, we've been, over the last 30 years, been cultivating the ground that if a change were to happen, that it could happen very quickly because everything's in place. And all that's all we're waiting for is people to wake up in their consciousness and their action. The way of seeing the world needs to change. And then and then it could change like and then it's just a question of what is that point? It's quite a gear change. There was a conversation that stopped me in my tracks a few months ago. I was walking through so I live in, in Barcelona in this neighborhood called Gracia, which is really nice and it's not very, very green, but there are trees and there's lots of families and people stay out in the squares till late. You'll have like, you know, grandmothers and one-year-olds frolicking around, including the grandmothers actually, at one in the morning on a fiesta night. So it's, it's a very vibrant, alive place. And as I was walking through the square, I was listening to a conversation. It was on outrage and optimism actually with Joanna Macy. So, you know, beloved ecology pioneer. And she said something which is really moving to me, which was something around the idea that we, to your point about not knowing, we don't know if our generation and the generations to come are going to be, and I'm paraphrasing here, the, the death doulas to a collapsing civilization and planet, or the midwives to something new. And to your point about that pain barrier, the threshold, birth, and I'm not someone who wants to give birth, <laughs> it's terrifying, I'd rather leave it to other people, but it is something that that takes women to that knife edge of life and death and where nothing is guaranteed for either the woman who's going to give birth or the baby or babies um, that are birthed and it's this this that it's that that kind of mess and complexity and not knowing and aliveness and I think what her point was is wouldn't you want to be present as fully as possible regardless of whether it's a birth or it's a death. And often these things come hand in hand. So, so it's that sense of being really able to bear witness fully and be present fully and not turn away. And so I think, kind of coming towards the end of this part of the conversation, another question I have is, how can we engage with the grief and the fear and the shutting down without collapsing, without feeling 
so overwhelmed that it's unbearable? Um, what are ways to kind of dance with it without becoming immobilized? Well, if you dance with it, you don't become immobilized. So it's in the dancing itself, in the moving towards. Yes, it's in the dance because because we don't know, and and life is a grand mystery, <laughs> and um, and you know. Uh, I love Joanna Macy, and I, you know, I brought her into the Guardian once to do a, a day-long session. Then, and we've had a couple of oh, times wow. on the on the <laughs> the way out as in podcast. And and on the last one, she said she said they're bodhisattvas across the universe, um, queuing up to come back here and help at this moment. Mm. This is a, this is the most important moment to be alive, and it is. It's the most important moment because it's this moment. And and it's this moment of great danger, and so so we show up fully, but without preconceptions, without needs, without attachments. But we fully show up as human beings because that's what's missing. People just showing up fully as human beings. People just just being present to what is, and present to what might be, and present to their hopes and dreams, but without holding on to them. For dear life, but just releasing them into the world and and seeing if they find a home. And if enough of us do that, then I think that's the hard part. <laughs> yeah, releasing. but it is and it isn't. It seems hard, and you know, but it, but that's I suppose you know, knowing that my brothers will all pass and I will pass has great sadness in it, and also tenderness and love and beauty and you know in Japanese art they have wabi-sabi you know the beauty in decay you know that in decay there is enormous beauty mm. but but in our minds we've just bought into a principle that the flowers are only beautiful when they're alive in full bloom not as that you know we've got on our in our kitchen some of the the lilies from Plum Village and 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 they're, they're dying and they've just been in a in a vase, slowly letting go of their colour, slowly letting go of their the tendrils, letting go of the, the the petals, and slowly drying up, and and it's a process of great beauty, as well. So to to end this part, then I'd love to ask you. And I'm very curious about how you'll answer this one. How you orient yourself towards life and beauty and wholeness on dark days. Hmm. Um, I think first of all is to understand, to call them dark days. Um, because often when we're, when something comes and overwhelms us, which is often what a dark day is like, um, what I've understood is literally the idea of when we're overwhelmed by th- something, we think that's all it is. We think that's everything. Mm. And so I imagine, you know, and I don't know if this is fair or not, but I imagine when when some people take their life, it's because they feel there's no way through and they're overwhelmed and they just don't believe there's a way through. Mm-hmm. And at that moment, make a decision that is too much. And um, and one of the things I've learned through the sort of Plum Village practice is that, that what mindfulness does is it, it allows you to embrace the feeling. Um, so first of all, you name the feeling so what is the, you know, it's not just a dark day, but what is it about the day that's dark? Is it 
um, that I'm feeling lost? Is it that I'm feeling hopeless? Is it feeling I'm feeling vulnerable? Is it I'm feeling um, sad? Is it I'm overwhelmed by grief? Is it that I've lost someone I care about? Is it that something I dreamt of hasn't happened? What well, you know, whatever it is, and um, to name the feeling. And and there's something that I understand in the mind that when you name something, it gives it borders. Hmm. It creates a form around which you can embrace. That when when it's just overwhelmed, there's no it pushes out every there's it fills every nook and cranny of your mind. There's nothing you can get. But as soon as you name it, what you're doing is you're already in a sense putting your arms around it. And as soon as you can put your arms around it, you create space and you can create some containment for it, so that you're able to start to. Exp- to, to observe it as opposed to just be it. Mm. And, um, and to recognize that, you know, impermanence, that I'm feeling this right now, but I actually wasn't feeling it yesterday. And in a year's time, I'm not sure if I'll even remember it. So to, to give it that context of things changing. Um, and then also to, to feel it. Because, because often... Often, well, our greatest fear is the feeling of something. Yeah. So, you know, the <laughs> podcast I do with the abbot of the monastery is the way out is in, and and that that has a particular flavour to it, which is we go into things, and um, and the way I've uh, experienced it a few times in my life, it's like going, it's like jumping into the abyss, <laughs> and um, and if we're being dragged into the abyss, then we feel we're victim and, and the abyss becomes like this place of darkness and death because that's the feeling, isn't it? That when we're over and we feel there's a sort of almost like a, it's like falling into the abyss where we have no, there's no hope, there's no way through and, and it feels dark rather than actually recognizing I'm jumping into the abyss. I'm in the abyss right now and realizing the abyss is, you know, in art and, and, Philosophy is, you know, it's a place of infinite possibility. Hmm. And, you know, in, in, in post-war art, you know, the, the void was a real powerful expression of what it is, the void of post-war, post-Second World War, you know, the, the feeling of, of loss and everything. But actually it was also the place of new possibilities. Um, and I, I, there, I've been sort of escorted a couple of times into the abyss by... By mentors and 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 on both occasions they transform my life. Um, so so I I think that the dark days are to not to, to avoid the feelings, not say oh well I can name it, um, I understand where it comes from, I felt it before, and therefore you know that's cool because actually it's to feel it, it's to go into the feeling, but not to be a victim of it. Not and not to and also not to indulge in it sometimes because sometimes we use these feelings to you know some hidden payoff to feel something about ourselves that that the bad feeling allows us to connect with mm. and and this idea you know it's not not conscious that we choose I want to choose a really bad experience to feel crap about myself but that we have we have patterns of thinking and and beliefs that where we think sometimes there's a secret payoff to bad things happening to us. Mm. So 
I was just in a coaching session with someone earlier and, and, you know, I mentioned one, you know, aspect, which when I was younger, I learned and seemed to make sense. And it's, it's when, when um, children have a belief that their parents ruined their life, you know, and, um, and blame, or blame, blame their parents for something that happened in their life. You know, the reason I'm not uh, a social person is because actually I was always at home and, and, you know, I was never allowed out or whatever, you know, whatever the belief is. And then we, and then the people can sabotage their life and to not be successful because it proves that their parents ruin their life. Hmm. And that even when their parents are dead, that people will still want to prove their parents ruin their life by sabotaging their life. Yeah. Um, because it's because that's more in it's more important to them to maintain the belief rather than to change the story. So so I think one thing when when they're dark days is just to to really feel what's going on. But also to ask a question is, you know, is this serving me in some way? Mm. Um, and, then, and then also to, you know, in, again, Plum Village tradition in a store culture, you bring up your mindfulness to embrace the feeling and, and help it to calm it and settle it back down into store consciousness rather than it blowing up in mind consciousness. Is you, you, you calm it, you name it, you recognize it, you feel it. And then you calm it down and realize it will pass. Everything will pass. Storms come and they pass. So I, I think, and I, I, you know, that's the theory or pra- rather the practice of it. Um, am I always, do I always do that? Absolutely not. Do I occasionally do it? Sometimes, occasionally I, I do parts of it. So, you know, it's, um, but I understand it. Yeah. And so therefore, because I understand it and I trust it, it allows me much easier to to be in to be through in that process, and sometimes without even thinking about it. Now. And sometimes I feel overwhelmed and think the world's against me. You know, it's like we're human. <laughs> I think that's when it's nice to have the, the the companionship of others who can kind of be there with you and remind you that that you're all right. Absolutely, it's interesting talking about kind of naming it, giving it form, containing it. And then it being about this place of possibility. I had, um, well, I, I don't often like talk much about my personal life on these shows, but but I'm thinking this might be kind of it's connected. To the oh, good. Let's make the, let's make this as an exception. <laughs> let's make this an exception. Um, and this is probably what what you bring and your presence to the coaching. And people are just like, oh yes, here I'll open up. But I recently had an experience. It was a, a few weeks, more than a few weeks back, where. I came back into contact with a feeling that I'd had that was a very overwhelming feeling when I was a kid growing up for many years. And I'd forgotten about this feeling and the sense of kind of, it was almost like a sense of betrayal or injustice of being alive and not wanting to be here. And it wasn't a suicidal sense at all. It was just this fury of feeling alone and not feeling connected. Um, and, and it was weird. I was like, why is it that I'm suddenly connecting to this old feeling that I had no recollection as an adult of having? even though it was quite potent and, and long-lasting. Um, and it connected to something that, another experience that I had that gave rise to a painting called Light in the Well of Shadows. And it was about sort of this idea that we can, we can store hurts or wounds or traumas in the body, transgenerationally and, and, and the rest of it. And I'd done some work around the womb. And when I went in 
in an imaginal way. I had all these really potent images that came. It was this dark place. There was a lot of fear and anger. But amidst the fear and anger, there was also this beauty and this potentiality. Um, and I would love to show it to you. It's a painting. It's not quite finished yet. And I also don't show unfinished paintings. <laughs> but here we go. Um, it's a painting of my friend Blanche, who is a musician. And she's an extraordinary artist. And she posed to me. It's not quite finished, but I don't know if you can see that. Mm. Mm, yes, beautiful. Thank you. It's, yeah, it's about this potential for, for beauty and, and connection, even in the midst of suffering. And every time I look at that painting now, and it's the same with songs when I write songs when I'm really heartbroken or, or excited or whatever, usually it's the kind of more painful feelings. As soon as that exists, if I'm feeling the feeling again, I go back to the song and it doesn't remove the feeling, it sublimates it or it creates something beautiful. It connects it to something that is more than just the feeling. And it's, it's I don't know how to put it into words, but it's, it takes on a shape and a life that makes it somehow beautiful. And that's really precious to, to mm. have some kind of practice like that. Mm, thank you for exceptional sharing. <laughs> exceptional sharing. <laughs> Probably won't happen again for a while. No, no, that's, that's enough. That's enough, Maybe really. No more. no more. No oh. more. Well, just to, re just to relate to that, because once one of the times where I was escorted into the void, um, I... I don't remember all the details. I remember the essential details, but not all the details. But I, I was going through this creative visualization with someone. Hmm. And I got to the point where um, where I could see myself, that, that, that I was in this scene where someone was about to be burnt at the stake. So it was a sort of like middle, age, middle ages type time. Wow. And there was someone tied to a pole and there was the wood all around and there, there was a mob that had been obviously incited that was with pitchforks and I was in the mob sort of you know shouting and and wow. you know this this raw emotion of kill you know got to kill this person and um and then everything went very hazy and um and the facilitator asked me to go sort of deep you know to jump into this place and um and he asked me to say who do you want to to go, you know, who would you like to go with? Because you should never go into the void on your own because you can get lost mm. very easily. And and I chose two archangels. I mean, it sounds very, it sounds very woo woo, and but at the time, <laughs> at the time, it, it didn't feel like that, you know. And I, I have nothing to do with angels or archangels, but it, he asked me, and that's what came to my mind. <laughs> and we sort of, and it was like went into deep into this, and we just went down and down, and eventually landed in this darkness and followed this path and there was this I could hear all this sort of shouting and ahead there was this doorway and it went into this huge underground cathedral and um wow and there were thousands of people and and at the front was the devil wow um basically and and he was training all these people to go forth into the four corners of the world and to spread sort of hatred and anger and um division and um, and I walked forward with the two archangels down the aisle of this, you know, vast cave-like cathedral and went to confront the devil. And when we went to confront him, he just, psh, like a puff of smoke, he just disappeared. And, and in that moment, I, I, went, I was just transported back to the scene of, um, of the burning. 
and um, and the and the person um, who was at the stake, there was just light shining out of them, wow. and um, reverence to this being. And um, so I feel a lot of emotion welling up around it because it's because I think that's what we're called to do. You know, that's what we're called to do, is that, you know, we do have, there is hatred and there is division and there is anger, but we can transform it into reverence. Hmm. And um, it's possible to do that. And, and in a sense, that's what we need most, is that the very people we want to burn are normally the people who can save us. And we choose to burn them because it's too painful to believe that we can be saved or we may not want to be saved. We may feel more comfortable in our anger and despair than in our joy and our happiness. Hmm. So not so dissimilar to what you were saying in your painting about hmm. facing into the dark times, not running away from them, but challenging them, walking towards them with support and with support, not our own, but with support and transforming into tenderness and love. And it is possible. Sometimes. Sometimes. Occasionally. <laughs> Do you remember Bill Hicks? Did you used to watch Bill Hicks at all in the 80s? He's a comedian. It rings a, rings a bell. Yeah. yeah. This very quick-witted, quite abrasive, polarizing comedian. And he... He had this close to all of his shows where it was about life being like um, a dream and the point that he was that he would come back to, and not dissimilar to what you just said, it's like people come back to remind us and we kill these people mm. because we're so wedded to the dream. And it's just the, it's the kind of a call to wake up from the most unexpected place from someone who drinks and smokes, you know, the, the kind of characters that... <laughs> You wouldn't necessarily <laughs> imagine to be aligned with the bodhisattvas of this world. And yet, mm. um, yeah, and yet the song is still sung. Um, so before we move to the, the gentle questions round, just a very simple question, which is where are the best places to, to find you, to listen to The Way Out is In? What are the links that you can share with people? And, you know, also about Plum Village. Um. Well, just that, really. I mean, the way it is in, it's on all the podcast platforms. It's very easy to find. Um, it's it's my it's in a sense the love of my life oh. because uh, I get you know the the abbot of the monastery is you know this beautiful young man. He's thirty five. He brother Papu. He was the attendant of Tignatan. Yeah, he was the attendant of Tignatan for seventeen years. He he imbues that spirit mm -hmm. and um and we sit in Tiknatan's little hut um called the sitting still hut and we sit around his kitchen table um, and we just i suppose shoot the breeze i mean we just we come up with a topic in that moment <laughs> or the day before we don't plan anything we don't edit it in the sense i mean it's edited for sound quality but it's it goes out in one go we don't interrupt it it's just one take mm. And um, and it's and it's the way I love to live life. It's spontaneous. It's emergent. I I get to know what I do know. I get to know what I don't know. I get to learn 
new perspectives and it and we get so and you know that's that's so that's the personal side and I, and I love it and it it's, gives me brings me joy and refreshes my spirit and and also it seems to do rather well in the world in the sense of we get so much feedback of people who who find it helps them through their dark days mm-hmm. and who gives them a sense of direction gives them new perspectives so it does for other people what it also you know when, when people occasionally get in touch and say things like this has helped me see the world in different ways and I, I always reply yeah it has for me too <laughs> because it's because whatever people say about it for them it tends to be what I think about it for me too you know so I do you know we wanted to create create it as just a place where people feel at home mm. you know it's the the signature plum village I have arrived I am home and and I think that's the most important thing is do when do we feel at home and so so if it helps people to help bring people home then that you know that is my my journey and I think in some ways all our journey beautiful Thank you. I'm going to leave that bit there because that's such a nice place to end the main conversation. <laughs> um, I often listen to you when I'm painting, by the way, which is a joy because it's like quite soothing for the soul. And sometimes I have to yeah. stop and rewind. And be like, I need to hear that bit again. Um, Can I just say one last thing, which is... Please. No, no. One of the best responses I had was uh, we went to stay in a bed and breakfast in England where we stay every year. And the year before last, my wife had mentioned that I do a podcast. And when we went back the following year, and um, we walked into the entrance and, and the woman came out and said, oh, I just have to say straight away, I absolutely love your podcast. And I sort of puffed up a little. I said, oh, really? You know, how lovely. I said, what do you like about it the most? She said, well, you know what? I have real trouble sleeping. And, um, and when I... <laughs> and she said, every time I put it on, within a few minutes, I'm fast asleep and I have the best night's sleep. Uh, and I thought, well, how how wonderful that it supports you in your sleep. You know, what what better result is there than that? Oh, that's, that's amazing. Oh, that's so funny. That's so funny. I have a podcast that's less like that, but um, if it's, it only happens when I'm on a plane, which is not often because I try to cut down my planing, but or like on a bus, which is this Jungian life, and it's just so soothing, and they feel like such welcome voices. I'm like. Ah, and then and then within five minutes, I'm like, oh no, you <laughs> missed the point. <laughs> but that is a gift. That's a real gift. The gift of sleep. Um, podcast for insomniacs. Yeah. <laughs> so, first question in this section is: if you could go back to young Joe when he was maybe ten or eleven years old, and be in conversation with him, what advice might you give him, and what advice do you think he would give you? Mm-hmm. So I have actually, this was the, the first transformation I ever went through. Was, um, there was a, in, the, in the US, there, in, when I was young, there was a, a very famous psychology therapist called John Bradshaw, <laughs> who wrote, did a lot of work on the inner child. Mm. And I was, working for the Sunday, I was working for the Sunday Telegraph, and, uh, and I liked watching his program, and I thought, well, I'll go and write about him. So under the guise of, got in touch with my editor, said, look, can I go to New Orleans to do this, to write a piece? without saying, actually, I want to go for myself. And, um, and I went there and he did this creative visualization of going back to meet oneself as a child. So I actually had this conversation. 
and it changed my life. It fundamentally shifted my understanding because I, he asks you to imagine the age, and I think I imagine myself as nine, and he then asks you to go back to your house and as an adult and to go and walk into the house and, and find where your child is. And I was in my bedroom and I was crying and I was feeling lonely and, um, and that I didn't think life was worth living and that, um, hmm. and that I had no hope in me. And I sat down on the bed and said, you know, it's okay, you know, we, we, we made it, you know, I'm, I'm okay now. I'm sort of, um, I'm working things through. And, um, and it, you know, you're going to be okay. Hmm. And, um, and what I, what I realized in that, actually afterwards, because I spent then the next week in New Orleans just writing around what my experience through those three days was, but, but what I realized is that in the present moment, we can heal the past and change the future. And so in that present moment of connecting to myself as a young person, I reached into the past and I was able to heal. I was able to visit myself as a child and actually change my young self-understanding of life. That then changed me back in the present moment through that connection. So I went in the present moment to the past. The perception changed that child's perception then came to me, back to me in the present moment and changed me in that next moment. And in that moment, I changed the trajectory of my future because rather than feeling still that part of me that felt alone and lost and without hope, mm -hmm. that I was able to have that conversation and for him to, and the advice from him, I can recognize that, yeah, things did work out. Things are okay, that you are still here, that you are making sense of the world now. That, that, that was the, I think the defining moment that changed my life because we can heal the past in the present moment and it then heals us in the present moment and then it transforms our future. And, and, and I sometimes see it almost as the sign of the body in the present moment. And then with our left hand, we reach out to the past and with our right hand, we reach out to the future. And, and that is that sort mm. of the cross to me is the balance of the, in the future. I can heal the past and transform the future. But I do it through my grounded body, my feet on the ground, my, my, uh, my spirit, connection to spirit above and then from that place of you know that's the sort of you know the, the idea of the Kabbalist who's who's grounded on the you know Jewish mysticism the Kabbalist he's got his feet on the ground but he's able to call God through the archangels through the angels into his being and and then on in that way on the left is the world of nature and on the right is the world of man, the other way around. So, so it has that same, another way of seeing that, that sort of we bring heaven to earth in a grounded way. We recognize the power of nature and we recognize the role of humanity and, and we're able to integrate all of that. Hmm. So it's a sort of similar idea. I love that idea. 
And also the sense that the, the past and the future are alive and available to us. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That it doesn't have to be this stuck thing that's, that's cast in stone, that there's a potential to actually um, call out, reach out to it. And we, can, and we can heal our relationships. We can heal anything where we feel we've done something wrong or we feel someone has wronged us. Mm-hmm. We can heal that in the past and in the present and release ourselves and release them because it's it's our holding on to people that blocks them from moving on in whatever way that manifests who knows so i'm just gonna ask an extra follow-in question to this because it would feel like a waste not to take this this opportunity um is there one or maybe there's a couple of practices that if people are listening to this and they're thinking actually i'd really like to explore that that you can point people towards, they know what to search for? Um, maybe, firstly, to smile in the mirror. <laughs> and um, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very simple practice. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> to sort of to, to, to look at oneself in the mirror and to, mm-hmm. to see oneself more fully. Um, but in terms of, I mean, you know, there's... Let's take the town's books. You know, I, I love my two favorite of his, however many 150 books he's written. Um, uh, one is, um, one is um, The Heart of the Buddha's Teachings. And it's just such a beautiful and simple telling of the heart of this philosophy, which I think can transform our lives. Um, and then the second one is The Art of Living, which is. Um, edited by one of the beautiful sisters of Plum Village, Sister True Dedication. Um, and it's, again, a, just a very simple and beautiful application of, of how Zen can help us to live a better life. Thank you for listening to Natalie Nahai and Conversation. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review. It means a lot to me to read your support, especially as this is a self-funded project into which we pour our love and time and attention. To find out more about my work and how to get involved in my projects, you can head over to natalinahigh.com, explore additional books and resources at natalinahigh.com forward slash resources, and check out the gatherings I run at ffsalons.com. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me on Instagram and LinkedIn at natalinahigh. My thanks to Caro C for producing, thank you for listening, and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.